Hello there and welcome into this edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Well, first up on this edition of the podcast, you'll be hearing from John Van Sloten, who brings some insight into what the Bible has to say about our occupation. Then it's author and ballerina Patricia Beale, who has crafted a novel that blends her love for dance with her love for the Lord. And a marriage renewal story from Shauna Shanks. In her case, her husband confessed infidelity. He wanted out, but he never left. You'll gain a sense of her faith in God and her tenacity to preserve her marriage. And on this edition of The Intersection, some comments from Danette Crawford, who encourages believers to be influential and to set a standard that is based on biblical truth. Next, it's Baylor University professor Robert Marks providing some faith-informed insight into artificial intelligence, supercomputing, and addressing concerns about AI and evolution. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. John Van Sloten is involved in pastoral ministry in Calgary, Alberta, in Canada. He's authored a book called Every Job a Parable, What Walmart Greeters, Nurses, and Astronauts Tell Us About God. He talked with me about the value of work, the theology of work, and how God wants our work to reflect his character. Here now is John Van Sloten. What are some of the common threads, no matter what a person's occupation might be, those threads someone can experience as they walk with God on their job? Yeah, well, I mean, most foundationally is that an omnipresent, everywhere, all-powerful, sovereign, providential God is there. Um, Secondly, you are made in the image of the God who is the ultimate creator, cleaner, restorer, um, rebuilder, uh, planner, organizer of the cosmos. Um, And in very specific ways, and then this is where you start to part from where it's all the same and where your specific job reflects him, in very unique ways, your vocational language, where, where you're good at what you do, you uniquely image God um, in your time and place. And so, yeah, get all of the foundational theology that God is there and that you image God. You are made in the image of a working God. Work is not a part of the curse. Work was there before the fall. Um, you can imagine Adam and Eve. They, they, you know, they started raking leaves up, and they started to, to fill the earth and be fruitful and multiply, not just uh, physiologically, but also in terms of bringing culture and, and, and life and, and, and everything to the world. And so God is moving in the thing that you do. And even if it's a very small thing, like a Walmart greeter, in a lot of people's perceptions, is, is not a great job, right? There's a lady who used to deliver flyers in my neighborhood, and her story ended up being one of the most compelling in the book. My editor pushed it to chapter one, and she was 75 years old, delivering flyers in the community um, in and out of every season, and, and not a very um, esteemed job. And yet even there, in in bringing the ability for neighbors uh, to save some money or to find out products available so that they can have a little bit better life. She was doing something in terms of bringing flourishing and more to the world. So everything from a Walmart greeter to an astronaut, um, every job, an engineer, a physicist, a scientist, a, a server in a restaurant, every time I've come alongside people's jobs and we started to talk about it, um, the lights went on. I never thought of my job in this way before, Pastor John. Thanks for including me in the process. You talk about a, a scientist or a physicist 
those are not necessarily jobs that people think of as being customer related or or service related but nevertheless just in applying those skills a person is reflecting the image of god is that following kind of what you were saying Absolutely, and that's maybe where this book starts to become most unique. When you're doing things hospitably and humbly and serving and helping people find their way or helping heal their lives, you can see very close connections to our faith. But um, I I, I preached a sermon on radiation physics, and uh, a lady in our church was dying of cancer, and she said, you've got to preach a sermon on the science of these amazing machines that are being used to treat me. And I thought, oh, that's going to be complicated, but I, I, I went with it, and I went with it because two days later, a friend of mine from my home church on the other side of the country phoned and said, hey, I'm driving through town, John, I want to meet with you, and he's the guy who has written the academic textbooks on radiation physics that have been used in hospitals across North America. So I end up talking with him, a scientist of faith who's had faith his whole life um, and, and tried to integrate it into his work. And never before had he thought about the nature, the actual nature of radiation physics and how the machines that he helps design uh, by getting the radiation exactly to the point where the cancer is and as far as they can, not beyond that point so that no other cells are killed, that that kind of precise way of uh, ferreting out the sinful thing that is cancer and brokenness says something about the precision with which the Spirit of God goes for sin in our lives and tries to eradicate what is broken and bring healing. And, you know, I mean, that was just one point in the sermon about the, the nature of his physics and his science in, in, in the field of healthcare. But for him, he'd never thought about the fact that he's, he is, as a physicist, he's made in the image of the God who came up with the idea of physics. So, of course, you know, when he's jazzed about the science, <laughs> he's made to feel that jazzed feeling. And, and, and the hope in telling him that is that maybe in those great scientific moments of just loving the way physics works and the way the universe holds together, he'll meet the one who's holding the universe together. John Van Sloten here on The Intersection. You can learn more by visiting the website everyjobaparable.com. The Intersection podcast continues now with dancer, author, and Army wife, Patricia Beal. She discussed with me some elements of how her novel, A Season to Dance, came to be, a book integrating her love for dance and her love for Christ. Here now from that conversation is Patricia Beal. She feels early on in the story, God knocking on the, on the door of her heart, but she ignores it and ignores it. She spends quite um, most of her journey, actually, like most of us, rejecting that feeling and thinking that, you know, it cannot be real, that it just doesn't make any sense. Uh, she doesn't believe at all. She, she's quite against all things religion until God takes her to the woodshed and doesn't let go until she realizes that, you know what, my life will never work out if I don't surrender my, my will and my dreams. And, I mean, this is real. And there is no escaping it. There is no happiness without it. Well, it sounds like to me that there's a real parallel between what you experienced in your own life with the Lord and what your main character in this novel, A Season to Dance, experienced. So tell me just a bit about how God made himself real to you, bringing you into that saving knowledge of Christ. 
Right. Uh, when things were not going well, we were living in Germany. Uh, my husband was serving Baumholder and he was deployed. And I came to a place of brokenness that I had never seen before to the point that, you know, I grew up thinking if you're a right person, everything will turn out okay, that there are a million ways to heaven. Um, but at that point of sadness and brokenness, I stood in the middle of my empty kitchen in that place of being so terribly alone, and I said, God, and I was not talking to the God of the Bible because I didn't know the Bible, and I just said, God, you're dead, and if you're not dead, you just don't care. And, you know, you mean nothing. I was just so upset. Even though I was not talking to the God of the Bible, the God of the Bible was there, and I, and I think that was the moment when everything started changing. My husband came back from deployment with orders to come here to Fort Bliss. And that made no sense whatsoever. We had only been in Europe for one year. And he had always been airborne, light infantry. Why all of a sudden, toward the end of his career, they're sending us to a tank division? It made absolutely no sense. I got here, and we became the worst people that we could possibly be. Uh, when you get to the point of your life where you, where you say, um, there is no God and, you know, just do whatever you want because this is it. You know, there, there is no point in being good. Well, then you lose your moral compass and you do all kinds of crazy things. And in that place of being uh, the worst person that I had ever been, God closed every door. We tried to go to therapy. We tried to go to couples counseling and nothing ever worked out. We showed up for, at the places where we were supposed to get help and the doors were closed Another day they said, oh, I'm so sorry, we double booked, and the other couple got here first. We couldn't get any help. The only thing we had here in El Paso was a friend from the Fort Benning, Georgia years, and her claim to fame was churching, um, church shopping every time the Army moved her family. So she took us to the church that she had found here in El Paso. She took me. And immediately I, I recognized that, that that's what was missing, that I was making a terrible mistake. Everything, it was actually a Wednesday night and it was Sunday school, and everything that the the teacher was saying was, it was speaking straight to my heart about my children, about how life was not about just me no matter what, how um, churches don't raise kids, because that was something that was in my heart at the time. Well, you know, even though I'm churched out, God out, I have to give my kids an opportunity. And the guy, without knowing me, was talking about, you know, God doesn't give kids to churches. They give kids to parents. I will help you. But, you know, their spiritual well-being is still your responsibility. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm going to have to stick around. You know, they're not going to do everything for me. And I think it took about two weeks for me to realize through Bible reading that, you know what, this makes perfect sense. What was wrong with me is that I expected God to be a genie in a bottle and, and you know, be there as my beck and call. I had no knowledge of the hardship of Bible people, no knowledge of the reality of who God really is and how Christianity really works. Patricia Beal here on The Intersection. Her website is com. Well, this is the Intersection Podcast with Shauna Shanks. She is someone whose husband basically said that he wanted out of their marriage, but he never left. Shauna has written a book called A Fierce Love, One Woman's Courageous Journey to Save Her Marriage. From that conversation, this is Shauna Shanks. I mean, obviously our marriage wasn't perfect, but um, I go into, you know, obviously a lot more detail in the book. But um, 
I was devastated. We have three little boys. Um, at the time, my youngest was two years old. Um, we have this big house that we were trying to pay off. You know, all these all these things go through your head um, beyond just the heartbreak. And so um, I knew I needed to get up with the kids the next morning um, and that I needed to just calm down and sleep, but I was just really having trouble pulling myself together. So I, I asked the Lord, I said, God, what do I do? Please just give me one thing to focus on. And he told me, too. He told me to hope, and he told me to endure. And after he spoke that to me, that would just really begin – um, this season of him continuing to speak to me and give me direction um, of what to do during that season. Well, what did things become like around your house, especially between you and your husband, Micah, after this declaration of his? Well, I asked him not to leave. I think he was um, planning on moving, actually, that same night. He had some stuff packed, but uh, I asked him to just give me a couple days just to buy myself some time. I wasn't ready to tell the kids. I mean, they would have no idea that, that it was even an option for, you know, one of the parents to leave. Like, they just, this was going to shatter them, and obviously it was shattering me. So I asked him to just give me a couple days. And in those couple of days, the Lord took me to First Corinthians 13, and um, that became what I call my love filter because I would read those verses that I'd known my whole life that I thought were really simple to do. But um, in this context, um, he was asking me to be kind, to be patient, to not keep a record of wrongs. And um, I call it my love filter because anything that I normally would want to say in that situation that would be hateful or, you know, rage-filled or any of that stuff that, you know, you would think a normal person would be in that situation, um, God kind of prohibited me from. So it was a really restricting list, but it was also um, really liberating. So I think just the shock of what I was doing um, was enough to cause my husband to kind of stay just to see what was going on, you know? (laughs) And to add insult to injury, if you will, he he basically declared that he wanted a divorce, that he didn't love you, never had loved you. He also confessed that there was someone else. How did yes. how did that affect things? So that was two weeks after he told me that he wanted a divorce and he was still in the home, and God had, as they say, directed me to First Corinthians 13. So I was already kind of operating in this God bubble of, um, trying to be obedient to those things. And so I want to say that that really actually helped me pre- help prepare me for that news um, that he was having an affair. And I remember as he, you know, it was the middle of the night one night, we were sitting up on the couch alone together in the quiet, and he admitted it. He said, yes, I'm having an affair. And I just had this strange calm kind of come over me, and I'm going through that list that God gave me, and, you know, I said, love is patient, be patient, love is kind, be kind, and I'm remembering those things in my mind, and I just remember um, when I opened my mouth, I said to my husband, I said, this is fixable, and that's that's all (laughs) I remember saying right at that moment, so it was just kind of a continuation of me trying to operate from 1 Corinthians 13, really. Mm. Well, give us an appraisal, if you would, about your marriage now and and what you've seen God do now in this whole restoration process. Well, for one, I think um, I've called it, we've had a first marriage and we've had a second marriage, even though we never officially got a divorce. um, The difference is night and day. Um, The biggest difference is that we are both fulfilled in Christ first. We are not, you know, in an unhealthy way trying to pull that, you know, fulfillment out of each other. We know who we are in Christ, um, and we seek Him first, and we chase Him 
first as individuals before we do that as a couple. Um, we actually bought um, some farmland, and we're finishing up building a house out of shipping containers. We should be moved in next week. So we have we kind of went from you know, our marriage almost imploding to going through the season of following the Lord to, you know, me writing everything down and getting this book deal. And now we're building this house out of shipping containers together. So it's just kind of been one adventure after the other that, you know, at the beginning, I'm just asking God to save my marriage. And in the end, what he gave me was just an incredible sense of my worth in in him and um, gave me a passion for him back, which would have been enough. But he's really just kind of packed on the blessings for our family um, since that season. Shauna Shanks here on The Intersection. Learn more through her website, Shauna Shanks, that's S-H-A-U-N-A Shanks.com. This is The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Learn more through the website, meetinghouseonline.info. You will find there a link to the download center through which you can listen to or download full conversations of guests featured from guests. Full conversations from guests featured on the Intersection podcast. You could also subscribe to the Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Two blogs can be accessed. One is The Three, with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room, with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. You can also follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. Also, you can get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Danette Crawford is founder and president of Danette Crawford Ministries. It has an outreach arm called Joy Ministries Evangelistic Association. She also has a television program called Hope for Today with Danette Crawford. She has written a book entitled The Standard Setters, How to Become God's Person of Influence. Here now is Danette Crawford. Well, God has called us to make a difference in our world. And, you know, it's, it happens one life at a time. And God has called each of us to set the standard that the King has, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, has wherever we go. And, you know, I, the, this book is not just for women. It's men and women. Like Joseph, for example, Joseph was a standard setter. Esther was a standard setter. Vashti was in the palace with the king. Vashti lost the standard. She did not call. She did not come when the king called. God allowed her to get out of there and brought in Esther because Esther was maintaining the standard of the king. So as we maintain the standard that God has for us, living a godly life, a life of character and integrity, we can literally change the nation one life at a time by being God's standard setters. Well, this is going to be a broad question here, but when we look at the characteristics of a standard setter, what would you say would be the description of a person that is characterized in that way? It would be one that has a heart of obedience to the Father. You know, we all, I always say that God doesn't promote gifts and talents. The world promotes gifts and talents, but God faithful, obedient servants. So a standard setter is one that obeys the word, that obeys the leading of the Holy Spirit, that has a a real heart of character and integrity. And you know, character is 
who you are and when no one is looking, just like the life of Joseph. Joseph had many opportunities to make the wrong decisions, the wrong choices, to have a wrong heart attitude. But Joseph was a man of character no matter what he went through, and he set the standard. Whether he was in the pit or the prison or the palace, he set the standard, and as a result, everyone around him was blessed because of Joseph's character. What would you say to someone that might feel as if he or she is not qualified to be a standard setter? I'm glad that you asked that question. You know what what qualifies us is our heart. I just had a, a, a change in one of my staff, and one of my staff is deciding to retire, and I've known them for 30 years and worked with them for many years. And the person, as I began to pray, who was to take this position, this key position in our administrative staff, the Lord showed me an individual that was in my mail room working part-time and serving. And when I went to her, she felt unqualified, and I told her what God had told me that her heart is what had qualified her. Our number one thing is our heart. And as we have a heart of obedience, a heart of integrity, a heart of humility, and a heart to hear what Father says and do it, that's what qualifies us. So as standard setters in God's kingdom, the number one thing we need to do is have the heart of the Father. I understand in the book you discuss the matter of God's timing. Comment on that whole issue of trusting God's timing over what we think ought to happen at the time that that we think it should happen. You know, I I don't know about all of our listeners, but I like things fast. (laughs) I believe that we really live in a fast society, and I'm a high-energy type personality. So, you know, waiting is one of my least favorite things. But God is requiring us to wait for his timing in every area of life. You know, I always say that when the will of God and the timing of God intersect, suddenly the promises are fulfilled. You know, it's more about who we are when we get to the place that God has fulfilled the promises than actually arriving there. And God uses his timing to cause us really to trust what I call unconditionally. So many times we say we trust the Lord, but we don't really trust him unconditionally. And when we have to wait for God's timing of things, it really causes us to grow in our character and in our trust and even in our faith in God. So yes, timing is crucial to being God's standard setter. Well, before we take another break, I did want to ask you about, well, some of these influences that can negatively impact our ability to be standard setters. I understand that you've discussed the whole topic of life filters. Comment on what those are and how we can actually apply those. You know, we need to be so careful what we allow in our spirit. Even music, things that we see on television, people around us, areas of influence— We need to keep ourselves pure. Number one, holiness never goes out of style. We need to live a holy life and a separated life. Danette Crawford here on The Intersection. Learn more through the website, Danette Crawford, D-A-N-E-T-T-E Crawford.com. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection, it's Robert Marks. He is a distinguished professor of electrical and computer engineering at Baylor University. He's also the co-author of the book, Introduction to Evolutionary Informatics. He and I had a conversation recently about such issues as supercomputing, artificial intelligence, and evolution. 
From that conversation, this is Robert Marks. There are processes such as the design process for evolution that are so-called non-algorithmic. Okay, now that's a big word, I know, but let me, let me explain it and Thank how you. it ties into artificial intelligence. Yes. It turns out the computers can only do what they're told to do. They can only do algorithms. They can only do step-by-step procedures like recipes. You know, you're given a recipe, how to bake a cake, how many eggs, how much flour you need, how long you put it in the oven, etc. And that indeed is all that a computer can do. There is now a growing consensus that computers are only able to do specific things. And there, there are things which are indisputably non-algorithmic or uncomputable. You can't compute them. And we see these abilities in the human mind all the time. We see the idea of creativity. We see understanding. We see uh, sentience, consciousness, self-awareness. These are things which are uh, above and beyond the capability of the computer. So it doesn't mean the computer and AI won't have a significant impact on our lives. Computers already have. I, for example, have lost all my privacy because I use a cell phone, right? But um, it is going to have a great impact on our life. Uh, However, some of the hype that we see motivated by movies like The Terminator and, uh, gosh, what was another one, The Matrix. And we have all of these cases where computers become really complex and they become self-aware. All of those cases are totally science fiction and will, will, in all probability, never happen. Well, and we we talk about this being science fiction, and that you know that sounds really really good. I believe that, but you've got some really people that are regarded as being really smart guys that really seem to be championing this this whole area of artificial intelligence and computers really taking upon themselves a, a greater self awareness or consciousness than than those that have designed or those who input the information actually contain. In other words, computers take the, the basic programming and then take it to another level. What's, what's up with that? What do you see as the flaws in, in that whole mindset? Well, I think that computer programs will often give you results which are surprising, but never creative. Uh, creativity, for example, that we see in humans and um, and places such as commerce and the free enterprise system and science and even in the arts always discards what has been accumulated. They go outside of the status quo. They, if you will, think outside of the box. And a computer can't think outside of the box. It can only uh, wallow in what it's been told to do. And so, therefore, you are never going to have anything which is creative. Now, one might think that, my golly, what are the, these computers are getting bigger and they're getting uh, smarter, and they are. But freshmen in computer science will recognize something called the church thesis, which says that the computers that we have today and the computers that we have tomorrow are have the same capabilities of the computer inter, um, invented by Alan Turing back in the 1930s. Alan Turing... He was in, Alan Turing was in the movie, um, The Imitation Game. Yes. And he was famous for cracking the Nazi Enigma code. He's also the father of modern computer science. And he came up with something called the Turing machine. And the church Turing thesis says that any computer that you have 
anything that that computer can do can go back and be implemented on Turing's original idea of a machine. Now, it might take um, you know a million times as long to do it on Turing's original machine, but the capabilities are no more different. So we are constrained today and tomorrow by this Church-Turing thesis, which says that no matter what computers we invent, that they are still going to have this limitation. Robert Marks here on The Intersection. Learn more through the website robertmarks.org. Well, we are nearing the end of today's edition of The Intersection Podcast. It's a weekly production of The Meeting House. Learn more through the website meetinghouseonline.info. You will find a link to the download center marked Meeting House On Demand. Also through that site, you can get subscribed to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Two blogs can be found. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House. You can also follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page and get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Thanks for joining me for this edition of The Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.